Morning, everybody. It's good to see all of you here. Good to see a few new faces. And, and if you're new and I have not met you yet, please introduce yourself to me after the service. I'd love to get to know you. And it's our hope that you feel like you're welcome here, like you're, you're part of the family. And to bring you up to speed, uh, we are in a series, a church life series, uh, called um, Forged by Grace. And uh, here's the thing. God's called us to love him, love each other, and love our neighbors. Not just talk about it, but to actually love God, love each other, and love our neighbors. And so what we've been doing is we've been looking at what Jesus and his followers said the church is to be. Now, here's the thing. I know in a group like this, there are maybe several different groups, uh, several different types of people. Some of you might think, you know what? I've already made a commitment to, to Jesus and his church, and so uh, I don't need a series on the church. I already know what the church is and what it should be. But here's the deal. The church in America is so far from what Jesus intended it to be. We know that, right? So we got to keep looking back. What did, what did Jesus say? What did his followers say that the church is supposed to be? Others of you may have made a commitment to Christ, uh, but you just don't want to have anything to do with an organized church. Maybe you were raised in it or something, and, and you've been turned off by, by the hypocrisy, and you might think, you know what? I will follow Jesus, but I am not going to be part of the organized church. And my father-in-law, he's a pastor, and he would say, that's okay, we're totally unorganized. In light of the problems in the church, I get why you would think that way and feel that way. But here's the deal. To actually follow Jesus means to be committed to his bride, the church. Now, here's the deal. If you wanted to be friends with me, and then you told me, I don't want to have anything to do with your wife, Shannon. I don't think that's going to work out too well, Right? How are we going to be friends if you don't love my, my wife like you, like you love me? First of all, that would never happen because she's like the coolest person ever. It's usually the other way around. I'll be friends with Shannon, but, but not that lug nut, Matt Ortiz. Here's the deal. When you were saved, God made you a part of the church. Finally, there are those who are probably not committed to Christ or the church. And you think, you know what? I'm not even sure if there is a God. I don't understand why Jesus should even be important to me. I don't need this. But, but the truth is, the average person that I have met, that I've talked to, that does not want to have anything to do with Christianity, that has a hard time with Christianity, uh, they, they say that they or someone they love has been burned by the church. And there are some deep scars there some deep wounds that need healing. It's important to address those things, and we can and we will. But just so you know where we're headed, the truth is the only way you will appreciate Christianity is if you come to grips with and see the genius of what Jesus actually wants for the church to be. A church that has been truly forged by grace. And, and so this series is for you too. It's for all of us. We all need this. So in our text that, that we read, we see Jesus training a group of 72 people, right? 
And there are, I don't know if you caught them, but there are two surprises in this text. The first surprise is that he sends this group of people out to do what he's been doing, the ministry of Jesus, and they come back shocked that they can actually do what Jesus has been doing. The second surprise is they come back like totally excited. They cannot wait to to tell Jesus about all the amazing things that, that they were able to do. And Jesus looks at them and says, don't rejoice in that. Now, why in the world is Jesus throwing a bucket of cold water on their joy? Well, remember the part where you say, I saw Satan fall like night lightning, right? He says, I knew a mighty angel, and he was much wiser, holier, nobler, far more powerful than you or anyone else or any other angel. But he got prideful. And his heart got filled with a multitude of evils so that his soul caught on fire and it ruined him and destruction was catastrophic and he brought catastrophic destruction into the world. Oh, well, in that case, well, that makes sense. Well, these two truths right here, I think, help us, they kind of help forge us, if we keep them in mind, help shape us into the church that he wants us to be. And that is the power to minister in Jesus' name and the secret of using that power that is accessible to you in a way that doesn't destroy you or other people. So here we go. To be the church that God wants us to be, we all need to understand this. Your first note, if you're taking notes, if you are a Christian, you have a mission. Now, I didn't mean to make that rhyme. It just does. Okay, if you're a Christian, you have a mission. Now, I want you to think about this as we're going through this this message. A very important critical question. Most of us kind of coast through life. We drift through life. And then at the end of our lives, we find out how did I get here? Why did I end up here? So I think it's very important to ask yourself along the way, throughout life, and especially today, right here, right now, ask yourself, why am I here? Why am I here? Why do I exist in this place, in this time, with the people in my life, with the gifts and the weaknesses and the strengths and disabilities? Why am I here? Why did God put me here? Now, if you read Luke, you see in the previous chapter... In chapter 9, Jesus sends out the 12 apostles. And if all we had was chapter 9, it would be easy to think that, you know what? Uh, Just the clergy, just the professional Christians have a mission. But here at the beginning of chapter 10, it says, The Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead. And Jesus gives them the same power that he and the apostles have. And various scholars and commentators agree that the, for various reasons that this number 72 ha, uh, represents the nations, all the people groups of the world. They represent you and, you and 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 me. Not just the 12 in seminary, but every follower of Jesus. Part of being a Christian, if you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, a citizen of of God's new city called the church, it's realizing that you personally, you personally are one of the sent people of God. 
If you are a Christian, you personally have a mission. Pastor and author Tim Keller says, God never calls you in without sending you out. He never blesses you without calling you to be a blessing. You know, we see this throughout the scripture, Abraham call, or God calls Abraham in and promises to make him a, a great nation. And then he says, get out, go to a land that I will show you. And then he calls Moses in so that Moses can see him and know him. And he says, now I want you to get out, go to my people, go to Pharaoh and, del- and deliver them. And then he calls in Isaiah, he calls him in. And then he says, Isaiah, I have, I have cleansed you, I've healed you of your guilt and sin. Now, now get out and represent me to my people. And then all through the New Testament, we see God, God draw people into his kingdom left and right. And the people that he calls in, they become the sent people of King Jesus to represent him and to minister to the world in his name. So God never calls you in except to send you out. That's why every now and then we'll say around here, welcome to Infusion Church, now get out. Right? And come back next week, but you know. You are part of the sent people of God. If you are a Christian, you have a mission. Now let me tell you about it. Uh, first sub point if you're taking notes. Your mission You have a powerful mission. You might not think so, but you have a powerful mission. Jesus says in verse 16, the one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And what he's saying here is, look, listen, you're not my employee. I'm not your boss, you're not my employee. You are a partner with the authority and power to do what I would do if I were there in the flesh. Okay? The 72, they say, really? Okay, if you say so, let's give it a go. And then they find out that Jesus wasn't joking. Not one bit. It was real. And then uh, they say in verse 17, they they come back and they say, you know what, Lord, even the the demons are, are subject to us in your name. Do you remember hearing something about or reading about Jesus talking about giving someone a cup of cold water in his name. Comforting in his name, confronting in his name, speaking in his name. What Jesus is saying is when you involve yourself in the life of another person, when you feed the hungry, when you tutor a a child, when you grieve with the grieving, when you speak a kind word to a homeless person, you're not doing that as just anyone. He's saying, my name, who I am, my love, my power will come into that situation through you. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that? Does that matter to you? In Matthew, Jesus says, truly, I say to you, among, listen to this. This almost seems like crazy talk, but I'm going to explain it. I say to you, among those born of women, there was arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Why in the world would he say that? Well, the 72 people here demonstrate that. They are doing stuff that John the Baptist never 
did in his ministry. I mean, the, the least, the, the weakest, the humblest in the church have power greater than John the Baptist? Not that we're better preachers, not that we're holier than John, but we have the good news of Jesus called the gospel, and Paul tells us that the gospel is the power of God, and John only dimly understood it. The good news teaches us this. If you keep all the rules, God will like you and you go to heaven. Right? No way. But that gets preached all the time. The good news teaches us that even though we are more lost, more sinful than we ever dared to imagine or admit to ourselves or anyone else, through Christ and because of Christ, we are far more loved and accepted than we ever dared to dream. I tell you what, you get that, that transforms your reality. That transforms your identity. That transforms the way you look at the world and other people, yourself and God. And since you have this good news, guess what? You are way ahead of John the Baptist. You are way ahead of John the Baptist. Do you believe that? You have a power that John the Baptist did not have. Second, you not only have a powerful mission, you have a joyful mission. In verse 17, it goes on to say the 72 returned with joy. Now, their joy does need to be corrected, but their mission did bring them legitimate joy. In John 17, Jesus prays. He remember when he prays, Father, have you, as you have sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world, and I am telling them so that their joy may be complete. Jesus is sending these 72 people out, as he says, as lambs among wolves. That's a little precarious, right? He's sending them out to come face to face with, with demons and overwhelming challenges and to get personally involved in profound brokenness. They're not just doing seminars and retreats, and blogs, and handing out leaflets. They are personally getting involved with the helpless and the hopeless. Why? Well, Jesus says, so that their joy may be complete. That's a little counterintuitive, right? You are going out as lambs among wolves, but you will have a profound joy that you cannot even imagine. If you take that seriously, you're like, really? You know what? Some of us, and you're going to have to take this on faith, some of us have little joy because we have no real mission. You know what? Jesus sends us out to represent him in the world, in word and deed, to feed the hungry, bring healing to the sick, to bring hope to the hopeless. But it's just a little too precarious. It's a little too risky. We're afraid that we'll be taken advantage of. We're afraid it will require too much time. It'll require too much emotion. It'll require too much money. I'm barely surviving as it is. We'll be accused of having a weak, bleeding heart social gospel. It's just not worth it. But here's the deal. 
if you don't have a broken heart for the needs of the world, you will have a hard heart. And unless you are sent out, unless you have something to live for and die for, true joy will escape you. It's counterintuitive, but that's how the deal works. Next, you have a unique mission. You know what, people, it's easy when you read a passage like this to get distracted by, you know, the miracles and the demon cast, and you're like, cool, I, I want to do that. That would be awesome. Look what I can do. Pow. Right? But that's not the main point. Jesus is saying that it is not just preaching. It is not just talking. It is also doing We embody the gospel in truth and deed. Jesus did not come just to save our individual souls. He came to save and renew everything on every level. On its own, talk is cheap. We are called to serve in the name of Jesus. You know what that means when you serve in the name of Jesus? That you have a confidence that anything you do in his name to serve people, you have the confidence that it is Jesus serving through you. That it is Jesus loving through you. It is Jesus advancing his kingdom of grace through you. God's given you that mission. He's called you to advance his kingdom through both word and deed. The Apostle Paul, remember what he said? He said, you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. Here's the deal. God deliberately shaped you and shaped your life. Uh, He was deliberate about it. Your strengths and your weaknesses your abilities, and your disabilities. He wants you to reach people only you can reach. Whether you think you're all that or not, or you think that you can't do anything, God's still given you a mission. My question for every single one of you here this morning is this. Why are you here? Why do you exist in this place, in this time, in your job or, or you know, in, among the people that are, that are around you? Why are you here? 72 are sent out, do what Jesus and the apostles were doing. To their amazement, they do it. If you're a Christian, you have a mission. But don't make a name for yourself. The 72, they return totally stoked about what what they've been doing. And Jesus says, great, but don't rejoice in that. Bucket of cold water. Is Jesus just being a killjoy here? Because, you know, he kind of likes to set people up and knock them down. Is 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 that what he's doing? No, that's not at all. 
Jesus knows that something is going on here that is so dangerous, he has to confront it. Jesus knows that effective ministry can go horribly, horribly wrong. And I think we've all seen that. Your, your gifts and your abilities, and you put your, your trust in those things, and you start doing things in your own name and not Jesus' name, you end up getting chewed up by that and chewing up the people all around you, and people get hurt, and it is destructive, and then people turn their back on the church. It is destructive. So Jesus is discipling them, and he's protecting them, and he is protecting the people they may be influencing. He's discipling them when he says, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are so subject to you. You know what? There are times, okay, when Jesus has to deflate a false joy to give you a genuine, true joy that can survive whatever it is that, that you are going through, whatever it is that the world throws, throws at you. You read this in the scripture, Jacob, remember, he met, he met God and his life was changed. But first, Jacob had to be wounded before he could be truly healed. Paul met God and, and the whole course of his life was, was redirected. But first, he had to be blinded before he could really see. You ever felt like God just burst your bubble? You're like, hey, that wasn't part of the plan. We were going this way, and now you have me going this way. And it's frustrating. You feel like the rug's been taken out from underneath you, and, and you, you shake your fist at, at God, or you, you beat yourself up. But it just might be the only way to give us true joy. Now, okay, is it wrong to be happy about the good things that happen, or is it wrong to be happy about uh, whatever accomplishments we have by God's grace or, or the gifts that God gives us? Of course not. So why is Jesus correcting them here? Here's why. And it's something that we're all tempted to do, and we don't even realize it. We have an inclination to make a name for ourselves, to create our own security, our own significance. We do this all the time. And Jesus sees that this group, they are in danger of making their achievements, their ministry performance, all this cool stuff that they're doing, looking to all that for their, their identity and worth. And, and the truth is, being happy and rejoicing in something are two totally different things. Totally different things. I mean, we, receive, we see the Apostle Paul, he says, rejoice always. Again, I'll say rejoice. And yet you see all the hardships that he went through and the tears that he shed. Same with Jesus. And he was God. To rejoice is not just being happy. You rejoice in what gives your life ultimate significance. You rejoice in what gives your life ultimate security and ultimate satisfaction. You rejoice in what you are looking to for your name and your identity. When we get this one wrong, it messes up everything and the people around us. All right. Personal testimony. 
All right. Uh, back in 2000, early 2000. I've shared a little bit about this with you before, but I want you to see how even when you do good things with the wrong heart, wrong reasons, can mess everything up. Uh, I planted a church down by the border called Crossroads Church. And man, when we planted it, I mean, we caught a wave. And we were funded well. We had, you know, good music. We had all this amazing, uh, we, we somehow grew faster than, uh, than most church plants grew. And I remember after our one-year anniversary, uh, we had over 300 people show up. And there was a, you know, a, a mega church celebrity pastor in, in Seattle called me up to congratulate me and said, oh man, we didn't even have that on our one year anniversary. And then it was a staff at an influential church in Manhattan, flew me out there to, to, to uh, interact about church planting among lower income families. They invited me and I said, I'm thinking, I have nothing to tell them, but I'd love a free trip to New York. That would be awesome. <laughs> So I flew out there, and it was, it was, it was cool, and, and we were cool, and everything was awesome. And then not much later, the wave that we were riding crashed on top of us. It was like our church was being supernaturally dismantled. The housing crisis led over 50 of our people out of state, and most of the adults were leaders and financial contributors, and most of the people left were broke. And then our funding ran out sooner than planned. It's hard to fund a church when everybody's broke. And man, I got to tell you, we, we, we lost our music guy because we couldn't pay him anymore. And I started borrowing music guys from other churches. That was the most horrible thing I've ever done in my life. You have no idea how blessed we are uh, with, with Josh. I mean, we, we borrowed some people. They say some of the craziest things. And we did stuff we didn't even believe. <laughs> I'm like, what are, you, what are you saying? What are you doing? <sighs> You're never coming back here again. <laughs> we were falling apart. And I'm telling you, that totally messed me up. I mean, man, we were flying, man. We, and then it all, it all crashes. I was devastated, angry. I realized we didn't plant a church. We planted a church service. And I met with my mentor, Dick Kaufman, and he patiently listened to me. He's wise, older, older guy, godly. And he told, after, after I finished saying what I'm saying, he said, this, this is what I hear. What I'm hearing you say is that you know you've been saved by grace. You know that you've been adopted into God's family. That you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, made a friend of Jesus. Your eternity is secure, but it's not enough you also need a successful ministry. So, hit the nail right on the head. He was gentle. He was gracious. He didn't slap me upside the head when I probably needed it. He helped me realize that my ministry became my idol. Something good became my idol. Something good was something that I was looking to to be okay and it messed me up and the people around me up because I was just angry all the time. That is satanic pride. It destroys people. I was trying to make a name for myself. 
I was looking to significance for satisfaction and security, but it all evaporated. And far worse things could have happened to me, right? Far worse things could have happened to me. And I, and I was looking to, to that for my security. It's foolish. Now, here's, here's the thing. I'm not totally sanctified and perfectly holy. I've got a long way to go. I still struggle with that from time to time. But I catch it sooner now. I know God has changed me. God is still discipling me through his spirit and through my brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why we need each other. Look, we don't like to face it, but the reality is that your life can crash, fall apart anytime. And you won't even see it coming. That is reality, right? I'm not trying to be a Debbie Downer. But we know it's true. Anything can fall apart anytime. And so we have this deep sense of insignificant and insecurity. And we long for security when everything seems to be falling apart. We long for immortality, but everything dies. So we try to make a name for ourselves. All of us are tempted to do this through our career, through our kids. If you're involved in ministry, through your ministry, through our health, whatever it is, through our money. It's not wrong to find joy in these things. The issue is, has it become our way of knowing that we matter? Jesus says, stop, stop. For two reasons. First, because it'll lift you up and then drop you. In Luke 16, there's a story of, a, of, uh, of the rich man and Lazarus. And some people have wondered why Lazarus has a name in the story and the rich man doesn't. But he does. It's rich man. That's his name. Because whatever you rejoice in, whatever you get your significance from, that is where you get your name. Where do you get yours? Riches will go, children will go, ministry will go, your looks will go, memory will go, and along with it, your name, your identity. Jesus says, don't look to those things, but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. You know what that means? You don't need to make a name for yourself. You don't have to wait until the end of your life to, to find out if you're going to make it. When you become a Christian, you are given a name that is written in the book of life and your name will last forever. You don't have to strive after that. And your name is written by Jesus. Jesus does that for you with his blood, sweat, and tears. It means that it doesn't depend on you. When Israel made an, an idol and, and worshipped the golden calf, Moses, their mediator, pleaded with God, please forgive their sin and if not, blot my name out of the book of life. But God did not blot out his name because there was a better mediator than Moses. Hebrews 12 says, you have come to the city of the living God, 
to the church whose names are written in heaven and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to his sprinkled blood. So when Jesus was nailed to the cross for your sin and my sin and to pay the penalty for your sin and my sin, your name was written by Jesus with his blood. His name was blotted out. He was cut off from God's people so that you could have a name in heaven. That is good news. We sing how, we sing, my name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. That is something Jesus did for us. Do you, do you recognize the power in this? To the degree, the degree that you understand this, you will have the power to face brutal hardships and stand strong. You will have the power once you get knocked down, and you will get knocked down, but then you will get up more like King Jesus. And your life will be filled with humility and confidence. No matter how successful you are in the world's eyes, you'll never look down on other people. You'll never scoff at them. No matter how badly you fail in this life, it won't crush you. Look, you know Rahab? Rahab, the prostitute, and Bathsheba, the, the adulteress, were both specifically chosen by God to be included in the genealogy of God the Son, Jesus Christ, our Deliverer. Are you feeling guilty? Are, are, are you feeling worried? angry, discouraged, tempted. It's because we forget that stability and assurance and your everlasting name is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. So let me end with this same question. Do you know why you're here? Does your life reflect a deep sense of, of mission? to serve in the name of Jesus in both word and deed? What are you living for? I mean, what are you after? To be liked? To, to have nice things, a comfortable life, money in the bank, respect, security? There's nothing in and of those things themselves that are, that are wrong, but that cannot be your reason for existence. Why are you here? with your strengths, with your weaknesses, with your abilities, with your disabilities. Why are you here? God called you to make a difference in this world that will last for eternity. He's not asking you to do more than you can. But because you have the power of the gospel, it is God who still works through you. And you know what? Some people, they don't care. It's easy to not care when we're so distracted and having fun in sunny San Diego. But God has given you a mission. He's given all of us a mission worth living for, worth dying for. So what people did God put in your life? They point to your mission, serving them in word and deed in Jesus' name. I'm telling you right now, I'm not just trying to get brownie points with my wife, but I don't know anybody who does it better than she does. Genuinely loving people in need, being thoughtful, and encouraging them in the Lord. 
when you come to grips with that mission, you can throw everything you are into it, all that you have into it, because you don't have to make a name for yourself. You can smash, just totally smash, the idol of the American dream. You can live without the things that you've been chasing. You can live a life filled with exploits for Jesus. We can risk our comfortable little lives and dedicate everything to King Jesus because he is our joy. And he's already written your name in heaven. So, so, what will you do? How will you respond? Is there anything right here in this moment that comes to mind? Write it down. If nothing comes to mind, pray, God, show me. And he'll answer that prayer. Some, someone that he's calling you to serve, something he wants you to give up, some ways that he wants you to be generous, a neighbor that needs to experience the love and truth of Jesus and hear the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. Do you know why you are here? If you do, you know it's worth it. Amen? Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you saved us by your grace and your grace alone. God, so often we take your grace for granted. God, I pray in this moment everyone who is sitting here in, in this room, that, that your spirit would lead each person here to respond to the good news, the reality of the kingdom of God, their mission to love their neighbors in word and deed in Jesus' name. God, I pray that you give them a greater faith in you as opposed to having a faith in all the other things that we typically look to. We pray that you would define our identity and therefore how we live. Help us to give up everything for you and your sake because it is the best thing for us, those around us, and the world. And God, I pray if there's anybody here that has not put their faith and trust in you, that this morning you would give them the courage to follow you, to trust you, to acknowledge their, their need for, for their sin to be paid through Jesus' death on the cross and that they can receive new life of the resurrection of our King. God, I pray that you would give us wisdom how we collectively as a church can respond to the gospel, the grace that you showed us so that we may be gracious in our city, in our neighborhoods, and around the world. Help us to trust the 
power of the gospel and not ourselves. We pray this in your name.